0: Amen. Thanks, Sarah, and thank you to John and for the team uh, that have put that video together as well. I just love the Spanish language, and that was that was beautiful. So we are continuing our series in the Lord's Prayer. So far, Sarah has preached on our Father, and then last week Phil on (laughs) God's name is holy. I'm gonna explain why I'm a little off kilter in a second. Uh, So yeah, as Sarah said, I'm Anthony. I'm the youth pastor here at Coastline, and we have reached your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in that Lord's Prayer. Uh, So before we go any further, I should probably acknowledge that I am holding a pink iPad in a pink iPad case, but it's it's okay because I'm quite secure. I've actually never had an iPad before. I've never preach with an iPad. Uh, So this is my wife, Jo's. It was her birthday recently. We were able to to get her an iPad so that she can do lots of creative things that she loves to do. And we have loads of creatives here at Coastline, a huge creative community. But I wonder, as you're watching, who of you, uh, when you were a child, made dens and forts? Do you remember those? Uh, I remember uh, with my sisters uh, when I was younger, just kind of getting the clothes horse and the sheets uh, and pillows and torches and just trying to make the most elaborate den possible. Uh, maybe some of you watching have just realized that you, you are still a child, and that's okay. There's no judgment here in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's all good, because I don't know why it was so fun building a den or building a fort as a kid, and, and so we would just be in it and, and be reading in it and trying to preserve it for as long as possible uh, before being told to take it down or before it collapsing, As a youth pastor, I've known a lot of young people over the years who uh, play the game Minecraft, which, if you don't know, is a computer game where you basically create your own environment by building things. Uh, And then, actually, just recently I was with a friend uh, who plays uh, the computer game Age of Empires, uh, and uh, he actually got caught out playing Age of Empires at 7 a.m., trying to uh, kind of get some playtime in before anyone else got up. Um, And uh, so you're probably now trying to work out who that is. And so if this is a, a really rubbish message, then that should keep you occupied and distracted enough for the next 20 minutes or so. So speaking of age of empires, throughout history there have been many ages of empires and kingdoms and dynasties that have been built and then collapsed to a new power. When you survey the whole timeline of world history, from the Stone Age through the early Bronze Age, uh, through classical antiquity, the Middle Ages, and then the modern period where we find ourselves today, the picture emerges of human civilizations emanating and organizing around the leadership and rulership of empires and kingdoms and dynasties. This is how we have populated the territories here on our home of planet Earth. And of course, Britain was at one time uh, an imperial empire preceded by England and Scotland as separate kingdoms and then having been before them Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. You get the idea that throughout history, there have been lots of kingdoms and empires and dynasties. And actually, they still exist. We are, after all, part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and Japan is the, uh, the only country remaining with a technical emperor. The first known recorded kingdom was in the early Bronze Age, which coincides with the first time that we see uh, written uh, records being kept that we develop language to the point of being able to document that and write it down. Uh, and it's the Egyptian Old Kingdom in the year 3300 B.C., There were other civilizations around in the world at that time, of course, but this was the prominent power in the world at that time because uh, they had learned how to make the strongest iron technology. The Egyptians had built these huge furnaces and they used billows to make the fire hotter. Uh, I think it was somewhere between 600 and 800 degrees they managed to get these furnaces. Uh, And so their tools and their weapons were the best in the land. Uh, so it's no surprise that uh, they remained the strongest power in the world at that time uh, because of their weapons. Uh, and so uh, because there were these huge furnaces, uh, we know that uh, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites uh, to work for them, and so that's why, uh, one of the reasons why the, the slaves were dropping like flies. And as history continues, we see the emergence of the Akkadian Empire, the middle and new Egyptian kingdoms, the Babylonian Empire, the Elamite Empire, the Shang Dynasty, the Assyrian Empire. I like to think about it kind of a bit like Lord of the Rings, where there's lots of different kings in different realms, different parts of the world, and they're all struggling for power in this cosmic story of light and darkness, good versus evil. Of course, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings is fictional, but it's a great reflection, not of Middle-earth, but just earth. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem collapses to the Babylonian Empire, and the Jewish people are sent into exile, but there's a few remain, and they feel abandoned, Because Jerusalem is supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone, but all seems lost. But a prophet called Isaiah gives hope to the people that there's good news that Israel's God still remains and reigns as king. And God himself will one day return to this city of Jerusalem, take up his throne and bring peace, because God is the sovereign king, and so the people sing for joy. And against the backdrop, a few years later, as we continue down the timeline of human history, against the backdrop of the reign of the Roman Empire, the most powerful military and governmental force now by this point in the world, an empire of conquer and rule, In the midst of that, a baby is born. A baby whom hundreds of years before this same prophet, Isaiah, said. For to us, a child is born. And no extra points, by the way, for guessing when uh, this passage is most often quoted in our calendar year. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever God himself does come, as he promised that he would. When Jesus is born, as Paul writes in Galatians, in the fullness of time, uh, both in terms of the significant political and geographical moment in history, in the history of kingdoms and, and empires and civilizations, but also at a time where prophecies have been fulfilled. At this moment in time where Jesus is born, there was a king at that time and in that region, a king of the Jews named King Herod. Uh, He was the king of the kingdom of Judea, which itself was under the influence of Roman rule, the Roman Empire, because at that time there was still a significant uh, separation of religion and state. And Herod, by the way, he was so consumed by his own grip of power that uh, in his own rulership and paranoia, it caused him to have three of his own sons and his wife executed, murdered, for fear that they were conspiring to threaten his power. And a couple of years after his birth, we read that some magi visit Jesus. Uh, These wise men, uh, they were uh, a Persian priesthood And they were from a royal tribe from the massive Parthian Empire that was at war with Rome at the time. And they had come following the star to worship the real king, Jesus. These uh, men were dream interpreters, they were astronomers, and they were advisors to kings. But they were also high ranking government officials who had the status and authority to identify future kings. Uh, In fact, no one sat on the Middle Eastern throne in the east where these guys were from without their authority. And so as kingmakers, they believed that God had sent a new king. So they go to the king of the Jews, to Herod, this guy, remember, who had three of his sons and his wife executed, announcing that this child, Jesus, who they'd followed this star uh, to find, that he was actually the rightful king of the Jews. I mean, talk about drama. Like, this is provocative stuff. And they travel to find him, and they fall at his feet and worship him. And they bring him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, representing his kingship. But this king was different, because this king would be the king of kings. Now, when we think about a king... Maybe, like me, you have some sort of medieval concept in mind. Maybe you you picture Vikings or someone like King John in uh, the the Disney version of Robin Hood, which is a solid film, by the way, Or, or any fairy tale, in fact. Even though we have a serving monarchy here in the United Kingdom, the idea of a king is slightly antiquated. But we sing of Jesus that he is the king of kings. And indeed Jesus is crucified as king of the Jews and a crown of thorns is placed on his head. And when we look back throughout the timeline of human history as we have, we can see that we live in a small part of history where kingship is not the norm. But there's something quite revealing and something inherent about human civilizations organized around the reign of a king or an emperor or a government. To make a quick distinction, where an emperor rules by conquest, a king rules by birthright. And so this is why the genealogies that you skip in your Bible are so important. <clears throat> you know who you are. The word emperor derives from the Latin imperari, which means to rule. But king is related to the word kin, which means family. And this king also has a kingdom. Jesus goes about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven, and acting like the king of Israel. But the way that Jesus describes God's reign kind of surprises everyone. The people were thinking that, okay, so a powerful, successful kingdom has to be strong and able to defeat its enemies and empires particularly the Roman Empire. But Jesus says that the greatest person in God's kingdom is the weakest, the one who loves and serves the poor. He says that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom, or maybe it's actually more the right way up. And more than a physical one, it's a spiritual one. Because the kingdom is life as it was made to be. But as we look around our world, we know that things are not the way that they should be. We know that there are wars and rumors of wars. In fact, Jesus even says that we should expect nations to come against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. We see poverty, inequality, broken relationships and dysfunction and addiction and refugees and trafficking and prejudice and loneliness and environmental damage and disease and death. But God's creation and God's way and God's will are good. In its simplest expression, Jesus defines the kingdom of of heaven as God's will on earth, as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying that your will, God, our Father, in heaven, should be done on earth, in our reality, as it is where you are. Because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of reality and the Bible is all about. They were once fully united and then separated and so God is bringing them back together once again. And in Jesus, heaven and earth overlap. These words of Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, encapsulate capture what it really means to know God and to follow him. It's putting things back together as we wish, as we all wish that they really are and making what's gone wrong right again. It's coming back to the original design, to the goodness that God created our world with. And so we all cry out for the kingdom because this is what it is to understand our human condition and the reality of the true story, that you are creation with the gift of life and all of creation is worshipping, whether we're worshipping ourselves or the things that we replace God with, we're all trying to get back to God, to what we had, to the way that things were and the way that life was meant to be. This kingdom comes against injustice and oppression and it binds up broken hearts. So let me ask you today, as you're watching, where are the places that God is breaking your heart for the kingdom to come? You see, in this life, we all build our own kingdoms. Every one of us, we all have our own kingdom. Your mind, your body, your house, your family, your route to Audi, your car, your phone, your thoughts and opinions, your social media presence, and what you want people to think of you, and the defensive walls that we put up to protect it all. There are two kingdoms battling for your life and attention right now, and every day you choose which one to buy into. The kingdom of the world is described by Marty Solomon of Bema Discipleship as a kingdom of empire. The Egyptian narrative of do I have enough and what can I do to be enough? It's fear over trust, and so there's hunger for power through conquer and enslavement to serve our own desires. And you have to follow this way or you don't fit in. And the poor and the marginalized are expendable. Today it's the individualism that says that your truth is always right and cancel anyone who disagrees with you. And the hedonism that says as long as you're enjoying yourself and you're not hurting anyone else, whatever makes you happy and focus on you, then go for it. And the poor and the marginalized are still expendable. A culture where sacrifice of others is actually acceptable to sustain our obsession with pleasure and entertainment and wealth. And it's the wrong story and the wrong kingdom. God's kingdom, on the other hand, is a kingdom of shalom, where there's peace and where broken things are put back together and you're made whole and the outsider is brought in and has a place and chaos is brought to order. Empire is about self-preservation and God's kingdom is about self-sacrifice. People are either crying out for the kingdom or they're causing the cry. So in an act of sacrificial love for his enemies, Jesus, his throne becomes a Roman cross We're having ridden into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, which so enrages the the rulers, uh, the religious leaders, that they decide to have him killed, and Jesus lets them so that his death and resurrection would restore your relationship back to God as it was always in the beginning and meant to be. And when Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. To pray for God's design, to pray for his will and his way and his kingdom to come, we surrender our own kingdoms. We bring those kingly gifts that the Magi brought to Jesus to him as well, but in reverse order. The myrrh that we bring to him is the denying of ourself and our own striving for glory. The frankincense is because our life is impure, but his is pure. And then we can bring our gold to him, which represents our right to rule over our own life. So that it's not us who's living anymore, but those outside of the kingdom are who we're living for. And we're living for God's will, his heart, because his is that no one should be excluded This kingdom is for everyone, uniting all people everywhere. And the kingdom is family, which is why the word king doesn't mean ruler like empire, but family. When you become a Christian, you embark on a journey of preferring God's will and others before yourself. It's denying your own selfishness and dying to it so that it's no longer you who lives, but Jesus in you. And with the Holy Spirit now at work in you, you will receive power and be his witnesses. Our minds are renewed as though we're born again with new desires and and a spiritual life that was actually the life that we had with God in the beginning, before sin broke the relationship and separated us from God's love. This is why Jesus says that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. This is a new way to be human. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But the Hebrew word shuvah, which translates as repent, means not to turn, but to return. To repent means more than you've sinned, so go and clean yourself up and uh, change the way you are and get righteous. The starting point of, of creation is not depravity and brokenness, but wholeness and goodness and shalom, because you can't return to something unless you started in that place. Humanity is designed to function a particular kind of way, to carry the image of God, to be merciful and compassionate and loving. There's a right way and a true way. There's a path that we're supposed to walk and we stray off of that. And the call is to come back to the original design. There's something that is more true. And when we stray, we're being less true and giving the world a less accurate picture of who we really are, and of who God is, and his kingdom. God says, come back to your truest self, not to who you think you are because of your failures, but the story that God originally created you for. Empire is always on the doorstep. There's maybe no longer a threat of being overtaken physically, but spiritually, by distraction, by division, by your habits, your relationships by the ideologies that we buy into. And Jesus said that this kingdom, this kingdom of Shalom was arriving with him. Jesus is not just bringing the message, he's being the message. Pete Gregg says that often we want God to airlift us out of our problems. And more often he parachutes in and joins us in the midst of them. How do we make sense of that when the world is full of problems? What does the rule and reign of Jesus look like when he's a servant king with all the authority in the world but doesn't seem to use his power in the same way that world systems, our world systems use their power? I'm gonna invite the band to come up as I bring us into land. As we think about, finally, what does it mean then for us to live in in what we call this time of now and not yet? Because God has promised a kingdom, and God himself is a king, and in his coming, his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom, but a kingdom that is not yet fully here. We see just the partial overlap because we're living right now in kind of a time of in-between, between between Jesus having come once and then his coming again, which will be a historical and physical and visible event for all to see uh, in the future. It's setting in motion a series of events which confluence into the absolute coming of the kingdom of heaven, where, where our world and heaven are once again one. This has not just earthly consequences, but cosmic consequences for all people. Not just for those who belong to Jesus, but over all, every tongue and tribe, every people group and nation, because this king and this kingdom is for everyone, everywhere. Redemption for all, judgment for all that's wrong, and reign over everything. So let me ask you, what would it look like for heaven to touch earth in your life and the people around you. So, why pray for the kingdom to come? It's so that Jesus may establish his kingdom soon. It's the story that God is writing and it's our fundamental human longing for the way that things really are and should be to break into all the places that we experience its absence but through me Lord send me it's through us living the kingdom and through our prayers through your prayers because things change when we pray for the kingdom to come God wants to do something about the evil and the brokenness the pain and the sadness in our world that's who he is and that's what his kingdom is And so I want to encourage us today that the kingdom is coming and it is near, that we can say thank you, Father, for all that you've done and are doing. Where there are wars, there are those housing refugees. Where there are rumors of wars, there are peacekeepers. Where there's poverty, there's people being fed. Where there's inequality, there's dignity. Where there's broken relationships and dysfunction, there's people sacrificing time to come alongside others and minister to them reconciliation and teaching and wholeness and adoption and fostering. Where there's addiction, there's unconditional love and strength for others and encouragement. Where there's environmental damage, there's activism. Where there's loneliness, there's community. Where there's prejudice, there's justice. Where there's disease and death, there's, there's healing and miracles and comfort and care. And the greatest miracle actually, which is the presence of Jesus with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. And when there's trafficking, there are people like Victor and Eileen Marks. Victor Marx is one of my absolute heroes of the faith. He's a a guy who when he was a child he was systematically abused time and time again by different stepfathers and he was left for dead when he was just a young boy and he went into uh, the marines and uh, learned some discipline and kind of got toughened up but it was there that he met jesus and had an encounter with the living god became a christian gave his life to him and since then god has taken this guy and given him an incredible wife and a family and now he's spoken all over America and the world, in, in prisons and in schools and in juvenile detention centers where where people are, are living in chaos and they're living far away from the kingdom of God. And then he's done work with uh, with soldiers with PTSD and most recently for the last few years, him and his wife and their dog, their, their canine scout, they have been uh, living in Iraq, going backwards and forwards to Iraq, rescuing women and girls who have been trafficked and enslaved and brutalized by ISIS. That is what God's kingdom looks like, and that is what he can do where he takes a life surrendered to him. He can bring his kingdom through you. So when Jesus delivers these words of the Lord's Prayer, it's in the context of a prayer in unity of of our Father, Debbie Wright describes the kingdom coming as an invitation to participation, that we get to do what Jesus did and is doing in extending the kingdom of God. We get to be the kingdom. The great thing is that it's bigger than you or I or our own kingdom, because when you're not seeing the breakthrough, the kingdom is still advancing. And we can pray together that God's kingdom comes. We get to be a part of that with two billion other people. I think that's pretty encouraging. And it's so easy to lose sight of when we're focused on another kingdom, on the wrong story and the wrong kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of our Father that we must seek after as our first priority. Instead of our personal kingdom and earthly kingdoms and and the ways that we've messed it up and, and we've turned order into chaos we pray your kingdom come instead so my prayer for us today is that God would do a work in your heart and your mind and in your longings so that his will becomes yours and that his kingdom is alive and at work in and through you That as we pray this prayer together, our faith levels would rise. Our expectations would grow to long for immeasurably more than we can imagine. And that we would get to know God more. That our affection for him would deepen as we step out to love the king and live the kingdom. So today, how is God calling you to pray for the kingdom of heaven to come? and even to be the answer to someone else's prayer as you live the kingdom through your life.